Hello, and welcome back to the Dinner Table Podcast, where we will bring conversations to the dinner table that your family wouldn't. Today we'll be discussing the tensions between the U.S. and Iran, how America's responding, what's next, and the ethics behind the jokes about war. I'm Griffin Wiles. And I'm Tessa Osborne. We're not usually a very heavy political podcast, but we really thought about talking about war since it's so relevant right now. Mm-hmm. So we brought in Robert Brothwaite, who's going to help sum up everything that's happening between the U.S. and Iran. And let's get into it. We are now joined with Robert Brathwaite, Professor of International Relations at James Madison College at Michigan State University. How are you? Very good. How about you? I'm great. Thank you. So we're just going to jump right into it, getting laying the background for the tensions between U.S. and Iran right now. So prior to 2020, how was the relationship between the U.S. and Iran? Historically, the, the relationship hasn't been great. Um, However, often I, I think the, the popular narrative is one of, you know, embittered enmity. Um, but it, I think in actuality it was much more nuanced. Um, I think from a contemporary standpoint, we can go back to 1979, the Iranian Revolution, taking of American hostages. That's, I think, typically the, the, the viewpoint we have. But if we go a bit back a little farther to the 50s, the United States was involved in a coup uh, against a a duly elected prime minister of Iran. And so I, I mentioned that from the standpoint, sometimes we have short memories. Um, the nuance I was mentioning is, despite the fact we've had problems with Iran, there's been tension and hostilities limited uh, against Iran. There's also been some limited cooperation. Um, Iran was cooperative in the conflict with Afghanistan against the fight for, with the, the Taliban. Um, it was in their interest to do so. Iran was also cooperative when it came to fighting ISIS in uh, Iraq, where Shiite militias that had a lot of Iranian influence were serving as the ground troops, where American warplanes would provide the air power. So I I think this is reflective of a a more complicated relationship, just one of rival or enemy. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what happened with the death of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani? Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, a little background on Soleimani. Soleimani was a leader of something called the Quds Verse, which would belong to an organization called the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Well, what the the Revolutionary Guards were a military force that was very focused on specifically kind of protecting the Iranian political establishment. It was formed after the revolution. Partly, they just didn't trust the regular military, thought they had a lot of former regime elements. Um, Since the revolution, the Revolutionary Guards have very much kind of morphed much more into they're involved in governance activities, they're involved in economic activities. The Quds Force is kind of their, lack of a better word, covert action division. So very much involved in kind of extraterritorial military activities. Soleimani was the commander of this. He was, he very much had a reputation specifically of having, uh, being a very adept operative, and in particular what he was very adept at was military strategy and the building of relationships between different non-state actors in the Middle East mm-hmm. to kind of further Iranian interests. And so, in some ways, people, maybe it shouldn't be as much of a surprise that he was taken out because late last year, the United States actually designated you know, the, uh, the entire Iranian Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization. You know, there's some news reports are, are trying to say, hey, this might have been in the planning months ago and that under certain conditions, that the U.S. military had a green light. I think that's still a little, uh, there's a lot of a lot of holes that still need to be filled before we can say that's the actual narrative. Yeah. But he had been on the radar of not just the Americans, but many other people for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why was Soleimani targeted and killed? So maybe um, the timeline of events that occurred that led to his death. 
On December 27th, there was a series of mortar and rocket attacks against a U.S. base, uh, actually an Iraqi base that housed a lot of U.S. military personnel in Kirkuk, Iraq. Those attacks led to the wounding of you know several Iraqi and American military personnel and also the killing of an American contractor. In response, on August 29th, the U.S. launched airstrikes against a number of a group that did this was called, I believe it's Katim Hezbollah. It's a Shiite militia that was specifically, we believe, to be very much directed by Iranian influence. And so in response, on December 29th, the U.S. launched a series of airstrikes against facilities of this militia, and uh, the death toll was somewhere around 25, somewhere between 25 and 50 people. Mm-hmm. What happened next on December 31st was protesters, many people think at the instigation of uh, so in particular, Soleimani, other uh, uh, Iranian officials that were within Iraq, stormed the U.S. embassy in Iraq, and very much they caused some damage, and it takes a while before Iraqi security forces can get a hold of the situation. And then in response, on January 2nd, an airstrike is launched outside the Baghdad airport that kills Soleimani and another, actually the militia leader of Khitab Hezbollah. And then... In response, we see the Iranians launch some missile attacks on, I think it was late on the night of January 7th. And then sometimes we, we forget that part of this sequence of events was the downing of a Ukrainian airliner a few hours later. Uh, what we believe to have happened was the Iranian Air Force air defense units were very, very nervous. They mistook it for supposedly American airstrike, and they unfortunately shot down this plane. But th- that's unfortunately the whole tragic events that occurred, not just including Soleimani's death, but kind of this escalation of tensions with Iran. And what was the Iranian response to the killing of the general? Uh, what they said was their official response. There's been, you know, some reports of, you know, limited cyber attacks. Uh, I remember the day after he was killed, there was a news report about a federal agency I'd never even heard about. It was called the Federal Deposit Insurance Library, not the actual corporation called the library, mm-hmm. had their website defaced uh, with a very anti-Trump picture. But their, you know, primary military response was this limited strike against a number of Iraqi bases that held U.S. military personnel, but there was no reports of casualties. And from what we understand from news report, that might have been on purpose. They were really looking not to escalate the situation. They weren't necessarily looking for war with the United States. And why Iraqi bases? So the United States still has uh, an American troop presence in Iraq. I want to say, you know, officially it's somewhere around five to 6,000 troops are still stationed in Iraq. And so I think from the standpoint of, turning your question from why do we see this response happen within Mm -hmm. Iraq, um, you know, partly it's, it's a convenient target that's very close by, probably have the capabilities to hit this. And most importantly, I think it gave them the ability to calibrate their response a bit. Mm-hmm. You can imagine, let's say they were to hit some sort of uh, American target, an American naval ship, something like that. That really increases the tensions, and it's very hard from either side to pull back at that point. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this was, it, it was their attempt to make a calibrated response where they wouldn't look weak, but at the same time they could say they responded but not in a way that would force, in particular, the Trump administration's hand to respond, to up the the ante in Mm -hmm. some ways. One thing that part of that calibrated response where they were, and they they really in some ways publicized how they were very sophisticated in trying to avoid casualties, the killing of uh, the accidental shootdown of the Ukrainian airline has created more problems with them, with their own populace, because on one hand they're saying you were able in some ways not to kill any Americans in this military strike, but then by mistake you killed a lot of Iranian citizens. And so this is part of this dynamic of I think why you saw the Iranians respond the way they did is very much the domestic political situation in Iran is not great for the ruling regime right now. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been a lot of anti-government protests going back into last year. 
Um, and so I, I think that also in some ways played into the type of response they were actually trying to do. Where do you predict the relationship between the U.S. and Iran going from here? Well, let's put it this way. I don't think you need a Ph.D. Um, <laughs> or a specialization in international relations to, to think probably not well. Right? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think the way to think about it is, is really seeing it from the, the, this type of action has really had impact in, in, you know, kind of three broad contexts. If you think about it from an American context, the real, if you want to say fallout, has been, and it's been a bit surprising, is a real attempt of a discussion about uh, what we call the war powers resolution. That specifically, military action is supposed to in some ways be approved by Congress. Um, since the 9-11 attacks, that really hasn't been the case. Most American military action that we see, whether it be in a place like Syria, Iraq, even Libya, has been operating under something called the authorization of use of military force. This goes back to right after 9-11. It's a very brief document that just basically says the U.S. can use military force if there's some connection to al-Qaeda or terrorism. There's been a lot of people both, and I think there's some bipartisan, is one of the few things we see some bipartisanship on. They're very uncomfortable with the level of prerogatives and freedom of action that the executive has at the expense of congressional powers. Mm -hmm. So I think what was very surprising to people was there was a vote, a war powers resolution vote in the House just a few days ago. Um, and one of the people who voted affirmatively, it got bipartisan support, but it was very surprising to people, a congressman from Florida, I believe his name's Matt Gates. Um, he's a really, many would consider him a diehard, very Trump supporter. He voted for it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that's part of the fallout we can say in the American context. I, I think in the Iranian context, the fallout is, you know, very briefly, they were able to rally national support because of the strike against the general. But then uh, the shooting down of the airliner has very much eroded that support. And now we're seeing very, very strong anti-government protest activity. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we have to factor that in. And then globally, I think if you look at it from the European perspective, I think this exacerbates already kind of tensions with the transatlantic alliance. Very much our European allies saw this as a reckless act. You know, I I think there's some debate where the killing, no one's going to shed a tear that Soleimani's dead, I think, from a number of different, especially from a U.S. national security standpoint. I mean, that's not to be flippant about, you know, loss of life, just from a national security threat standpoint. I think there's a a good argument to be made that Soleimani was a grave threat to U.S. national security. Imminent, I'm not so sure, you know, I'll I'll allow, I think we need more information for that. But I think from the standpoint of uh, this complete game changer of where there seems to be a lack of awareness by the killing of this major figure in Iran has probably very much reset what the rules are going to be for engagement between the U.S. and Iran going forward. And I'm not sure any of us know exactly what those are going to be, but the idea that we can just go back to the status quo, I, I think is very, very foolish, mm-hmm. um, both from a standpoint politically here in the United States and politically from an Iranian standpoint. Um, I think what would be very interesting is understanding how U.S. allies in the region, and here we're thinking Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and UAE, how they are going to react to this. For the last couple of years, since the Trump administration has come into power, we've seen these types of allies pressure the United States to take a much harder line vis-a-vis Iran. However, I don't think this is what they had in mind. More importantly, they understand that you know um, any sort of reaction or retaliation the Iranians do is unlikely to target the U.S. homeland directly. It's more likely to target U.S. interests in the region, which puts them squarely in the, in the crosshairs. So I, I think we are very much in new territory when it comes to what is the U.S.-Iranian relationship. I mean, I think likely what, what one might need to, to, to be realistic about is that this has grave repercussions for nuclear proliferation. 
mm-hmm. that likely, and we've already heard the Iranians talk about this, that they're moving away from the commitments they made in, uh, the 2015. Nu- in 2015 in the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, and, and I think you know, some commentators are saying, hey, it's very likely the long-term response here is Iran developing a nuclear weapon. Or, or attempting to, yeah. which then very much leads to, I mean, the reason we had the Iran nuclear deal was because it was either we allow them to have a bomb or we have to go to war. Um, those aren't really desirable options, I think, for any U.S. administration. I kind of want to talk about the, with um, Donald Trump getting impeached right now and him doing what he did mm-hmm. with Iran and then what we saw with Bill Clinton and his impeachment and what he did. Want to talk about that? I think partly we just don't have enough information. I mean, this is a, a lot of the narratives that we're seeing, in particular in, in in the media, are about how imminent the threat associated with Soleimani was. That was the rationale that the administration gave. That the reason we took this very provocative action, this killing of an official Iranian military general, because he posed an imminent and grave threat to U.S. interests, and there's been some chatter about he was targeting multiple U.S. embassies. I don't think we know enough. To really say was that true not true how imminent not imminent and that seems to be actually something congress is trying to get more information about thank you so much for talking with us today thank no so i appreciate it i think this is a, a great opportunity to talk about some topics that sometimes we we, we don't we, we only get to hear one perspective or a specific perspective we only see in the news sometimes being able to talk about in a more holistic way i think is it, it's a especially for someone who studies international relations a great opportunity so i really appreciate you guys having me thank you thank you How are you doing today, Griffin? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Just thinking about war. Just thinking, yeah, thinking about her. Thinking about her. More than I had to yeah. before. She's on the mind 2020. The, is war 2020's mantra? Is Yeah, is it the mantra? Love her war? War. A lot's been going on. Yeah, it's kind of tense in international relations right now, especially um, between the United States and Iran. Yeah. Following the United States killing of Qasem Soleimani, yes, of an course. Iranian general. I really want to discuss. I don't know about you, Griffin, but I really want to discuss the how America's reacting to what's been happening with mm-hmm. Iran. Um, I know as a Gen Zer, you know that what I've been seeing is a lot of reactions on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and. All of these things, Instagram too, they're not what you would expect, you know? Usually you would expect people being like, I'm outraged. And you know, you get some of that, but you, you also get some of how Gen Z's cope with things, which is jokes. Jokes. A lot of jokes about World War Three. But what are your thoughts on Gen Z specifically using humor to discuss international relations and tensions and impending wars and all that good stuff well at first as i was scrolling i thought it was really funny but i also saw you know like the normal stuff where people were like what's trump doing why is he doing this to us stuff about the rich people that vote for war aren't the people that actually deal with war but i do aside from all that i did really like the jokes at first i I didn't find them funny okay why just basic i thought they were goofy look at me can't get drafted. Oh, cool. Like, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Do you feel personally, like, are you afraid of the draft? And it's like... No. Okay. Because someone told me that if you've ever been on antidepressants or diagnosed with depression, you can't get drafted. Oh. 
Whether or not that's true. Whether or not that's true, I mean, I guess we'll find out, perhaps. But I'm not worried. For a long time, I was like, these are really funny. I enjoy this. This is kind of my humor. I like the comic relief because it is kind of, it's very stressful to think about the reality of it. And I don't like war and I don't think anyone likes war. But then I saw this tweet one day and I think it was Eugene, Eugene Lang from the Try Guys. He said that... We shouldn't be joking about it, basically. And it's, like, insensitive. And he's a guy that likes jokes, but he finds it insensitive. And that really made me think it was wondering, is this insensitive? I feel like Gen Z, in the current political scope, could be directing all of this energy that they're using to making half-assed memes and jokes about it <laughs> to actually do something about it. Like, what are you proposing they do? Pro- like, actually go out and protest war, kind of Congress people. True, true. Write the president, like, do whatever. But, because going on TikTok and trying to make something for clout, like, literally <laughs> using the war as, as, cl- uh, as yeah. means for clout, when you could just go out and actually try and do something about it. All right, thank you so much for listening this week. Yes, thank you so much. I hope you learned a lot about politics. We've got a lot coming up for you in this next season. I'm We've so excited. Yes. We have so many good things. So many good things. Definitely feel free to tweet us. Um, my handle is at Osborne Tessa. And my handle is at Griffin Wiles. You can also email us. You can reach me at griffin.wiles at statenews.com. And tessa.osborne at statenews.com. Let us know your thoughts, comments, concerns, stuff you want us to talk about, stuff you may be able to talk about. Sure, go ahead. Just let us know how you feel. Definitely also check out any of the other state news podcasting podcasts that are coming out. We got the 1909 Arts and Entertainment. It's going to be a great semester for podcasts. And I'm very happy to be a part of the State News Podcasting team. Me too. All right. We've plugged everything. Thank you so much for coming. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) See you next week. See you. Bye.